The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. In the last uh, hour, last time, last week, uh, looking at the large theme of the heavenly high priestly ministry of Jesus that um, we're prompted to do that certainly at some place in any kind of study of the theology of Hebrews simply because the writer tells us that that is the main point, uh, the kephalion 8.1. We'd made some preliminary points and now we're at uh, uh, the place where we can move on. This would be section B under Roman 2. Uh, to explore uh, the whole matter of the high priestly ministry of Christ from the vantage point of of Jesus Christ as son, sonship, and high priesthood, you could abbreviate. Or, if you want to get a little Greek up here, uh, the intersection, you can say we want to explore the uh, intersection in Hebrews between... Huios and Archiarus as, or simply, Hierus, priest, high priest, applied to Christ. Um, We can uh, also uh, make this observation as to the importance of of calling attention to this connection. Uh, We could say on the one hand that high priest is the dominant Christological conception for the writer, very explicitly so. But while that is the case, that Jesus is Son of God is more basic, more basic. So we're, we're making a, a distinction here between what is dominant and what is basic. And unless that is grasped, that is uh, the underlying basicness of the reality of Jesus as Son of God Unless we appreciate that, we are inevitably going to have inadequate conceptions of Christ as high priest. Particularly, as we're going to come to see, we'll have an inadequate understanding of the exaltedness of his priestly ministry, the uniqueness of Jesus' ministry as high priest. So we're going to enter into a discussion now that is going to highlight this factor, this connection, and we'll do that um, by... uh, uh, the formal structure here is going to look at key passages, uh, look at key passages as we move through the document where, we, if you will, we find the intersection of these two conceptions. And that encounters us in the first place in 1, 3, and 4. Or we encounter it, however you want to say it. Um, here's a little bit, uh, get a text at hand because we'll be wanting to make some observations now on the on the text. Here uh, we have the prologue, the introductory uh, uh, unit. And uh, certainly here, there's no difficulty in seeing, on the one hand, then, that sonship is prominent. And not just any sonship, but sonship uh, of an entirely unique character, even, we may say, unique in the sense of divine. Divine sonship is prominent in these verses. Now we have the fundamental overarching assertion that opens the document. We've talked about that, had occasion to draw attention to the, to the, to the, to the large paragraph or topic center, sentence that the writer begins with that uh, covers uh, everything he says in the document, uh, bringing out the eschatological revelation of God in huio the last day's speech of God in the Son. Now, uh, that reference to the Son that you have at the, uh, in the middle, at really at the end of 2A, 
um, just to uh, to look at things from uh, uh, from a more uh, more pointedly syntactical angle, uh, the syntactical flow. The reference to the sun gives rise to a series of relative clauses, relative clauses which have we all as antecedent. And let's just uh, make sure we see those here. Here we have the reference to the sun, and then we have a first a relative clause. The sun, whom he, God, appointed heir of all things, then the Son through whom he also made the eons, the worlds we should probably uh, translate uh, temporally here, uh, excuse me, not temporally, but give eon a spatial force here. And then thirdly, um, the Son who um, And then this third relative clause uh, really um, is, represents the rest of the large construction to the end of verse 4. We're told of the sun, and as this traces back, host traces back to we owe us antecedent, the sun who being uh, the, the effulgence, the outshining, the radiance of the glory and the character, the, uh, the exact representation, the imprint of his person, his substance, the Son being that, and bearing all things by the word of his power, and having made cleansing of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heavens, and then there's the further thought added in verse 4, which really complicates this syntactically. If you want to have fun seeing how good you are at diagramming Greek sentences, uh, do verses 3 and, well, actually, do the whole of 1 through 4, but especially uh, the, just the relative clause that we're dealing here in, in, in 3 and 4. Uh, the Son, having been made better than the angels, having been made better than the angels by so much, as he has inherited a better name than they. So you have a couple of interesting elements. Let me just, uh, without getting too far afield or too far in detail here, uh, what you have is the, is these, uh, um, the construction uh, conforming to a, a certain stereotype or pattern. You have the dative tasuto opening a comparison and the hosso in the dative, closing a comparison. And then within um, each clause, you have a further comparison. Having become better, and then the genitive here is a genitive of comparison, better than the angels, as, uh, see the comparative adjective here from um, agathos, good, better, as he has inherited a better name. Now, the, the comparative adjective modifies honoma, honoma, as he has inhabited, in, inherited a better name than they. Now, the comparison, here we have, see, uh, can illustrate the possibilities of uh, uh, the syntax for comparison. You can have a comparative genitive, better than the angels, or you can have the comparative expressed by para with the accusative. Um, now, uh, you can see then, um, backing away from verse 3 and, and just taking in all three relative clauses, uh, these clauses provide us some uh, with, with some, we can say uh, fairly, of, with some of the most profound and important teaching about the person of the Son that we have in uh, the New Testament, particularly the essential deity of the Son. Verse 3a, being the, uh, the radiation, the radiance of the divine glory and the exact representation of the person. Um, a key statement as to uh, expressing essential inner Trinitarian relationship. 
uh, you'd want to connect it, for instance, with John 1, 1 and 2. But now, um, looking more particularly at verse 3, we've already uh, talked about the syntax of verse 3 and 4. Let's just uh, accent further that in terms of the um, syntax, uh, the main part of the relative clause, um, to break it down a little bit further, is that the main thrust of the relative clause is that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who sat down? This is the main verb of the relative clause. Uh, that, you see, then, is clearly a reference to the ascension. Accenting the result of the ascension, the, the state brought about by the ascension as one of, of seating at the right hand, or as we often, uh, in theological, customarily, customary theological parlance, uh, what is described here is the heavenly session. Now, that is uh, what we need to observe further here. That way of expressing, uh, the writer's way of expressing himself here, is in language which is rather evidently influenced by the language of Psalm 110. Um, Psalm, and in the Septuagint, 109. Um, now, it's important to notice that the allusion, the clear allusion here to Psalm 110, because Psalm 110 is a psalm which connects ascension and heavenly session, connects the ascension with priesthood, more specifically, Melchizedekian, if we can use that um, adjective. Uh, priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, a heavenly priesthood. In other words, uh, the ascension, uh, the, the ascended heavenly priesthood uh, is the priesthood of Melchizedek, Melchizedek bringing together, um, as we'll see the writer doing very explicitly in other passages, um, in verses, and it'll be the same in both uh, Septuagint and Masoretic text English, verses 1 and 4, draw that connection. Um, and um, this is a passage, Psalm 110, which the writer uh, is going to make repeated use of, and it's just for that reason, then, uh, that they're brought into view, uh, it's brought into view uh, already here. It's as if the writer, uh, looking at it without becoming overly um, psychologizing or whatever, it's as if the writer here is at the outset uh, putting out the flag of Psalm 110 as that which he is going to make explicit use of later. Now, what we need to notice further in the, uh, the statement in verse 3, the main thought is that of heavenly session in the language of Psalm 110, uh, bringing implicitly into view uh, the reality of high priest. But we're, uh, the, this main thought of verse 3, you see, is qualified then with a couple of participial clauses. Uh, and now, see, we go within the relative clause, we go to a... a, a, a uh, further level of syntax, being, bearing, and making are the three ideas in parallel, uh, more or less, participially. The, the notion of Christ uh, seated at the right hand of God is qualified by these three um, participial clauses, the, these three notions uh, two of them are more stative um, or, 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 or durative in character, and so the, the participles are uh, present. Uh, he, who he is and what he does, his uh, controlling of all things by the word of his power. And then, but f uh, further, we're brought uh, with, a, with an immediate focus in the use of an aorist participle to the fact that this, um, 
This eternal, uh, all-sustaining Son is the one who has made cleansing for sin. And uh, you see, particularly this participial clause, um, whatever else uh, we might want to say about it, has reference to a distinctly high priestly activity. What is being described here is the sacrifice of the Son, his high priestly sacrifice, the high priestly sacrifice of the Son. So you see that although we might not immediately uh, appreciate this in an initial reading, uh, a surface uh, attention to the text, um, it's not difficult at all to see with just a bit of probing that there is already at the outset here then a, a pronounced connection, even though the explicit vocabulary of high priest is not here, there is here in these opening words a pronounced connection between sonship and high priesthood. The writer draws a connection here uh, which he is going to proceed to elucidate, elaborate in a number of ways uh, as we move through the document. So, um, we have, um, so far as our, um, our primary or formal concern for coming into this passage, uh, we've seen what we need to see, the connection between son and high priesthood. While we're here, however, um, and this is with a view toward um, delving uh, somewhat into the Christology of the document, uh, I'd like us to, uh, to add... Um, um, explore a developed discussion in a couple of di different directions. And uh, if you want to, let's call this A. Uh, first of all, I want to look more carefully at the thought of verse 4. The thought of verse 4. We've already um, spoken about it analyzing its syntax and, and the elements of, of comparison that are involved there. And here, there are, um, we can structure our, our, our discussion along a couple of lines. We're told in verse 4 that the heavenly session of the sun, mentioned in verse 3, what we're now told is that, in, that that involves Christ, the Son, becoming or being made better than the angels. Better than the angels. We're not only told that, but we're told in what respect we are to understand that he has become better than the angels. He has become better than the angels... In his exaltation, he has become better than the angels, the writer says, to the degree, hoso, to the degree that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So the exaltation is brought into view uh, in terms of its significance of what it, it, it accomplishes as a name event in terms of its uh, significance um, as providing a better or more excellent name. So, um, there's also uh, to be noticed here that the name is inherited. Inherited. Now, the notion of inheritance points us back to the thought of verse 2. That's where that idea came uh, through to begin with. Um, the son, we're told in the first of the relative clauses, is the son who God has appointed as heir of all things. Heir of all things. So that's certainly the thrust of the passage as we come through to what's said uh, just uh, uh, shortly beyond and, and through verse 4. Uh, the, the, the thrust of uh, of, of what's being said here is that the exaltation is the time of the inheritance. Ascension, as it results in heavenly session, 
is the time in which the uh, appointed inheritance has been realized. What I think um, confirms that, although I would think that's a clear enough uh, point from, from a, uh, a somewhat careful passage here, uh, is what we see if you look over in chapter 2, verse 9 for just a moment. 2.9, uh, there the writer is, is making use of Psalm 8, applying it, uh, as I would understand, uh, both in an anthropological and Christological way, uh, that is, bringing into view uh, what, uh, ha- what is God's destiny for a new humanity, but at the same time uh, uh, bringing Jesus into view as the, uh, as the archetype of that humanity, uh, particularly uh, the point that's made in verse 9, picking up on the language of Psalm 8, uh, after having said, we, you do, we do not yet see all things made subject to him. And uh, I was just having a discussion that, uh, about that yesterday with a couple um, other uh, faculty. Uh, the alto there, the hymn in, in verse 8, I'm inclined to see as, as, as deliberately ambivalent that the hymn uh, is humanity, man generically, uh, in other words, the destiny of, uh, we don't yet see all things subject to, uh, to mankind, but at the same time, uh, we don't yet see all things subject to Christ, him as Christ. Uh, the usage in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and 28, I think, would, would, um, would confirm that. But it, so the writer draws a contrast. We do not yet see what we do not yet see, but what we do see, he says, verse 9, is that we see Jesus, specifically the Jesus who was made lower uh, than the angels, brakuti, if you're looking at a Greek text, is, is uh, I mean, think uh, the issue can be whether we are to take that qualitatively, uh, describing the, the degree of them being made lower, or whether we take that brakuti temporally, lower for a little while. And, and I think that uh, just uh, the, the writer is, is, is taking it temporally here. So after we saw Jesus made lower than the angels for a little while on account of the sufferings of death, or we see him now on account of the sufferings of death, crowned with glory and honor. Now you can see that uh, because of the reference to the suffering of death, that the crowned with glory and honor consequent on that um, brings into view the exaltation main reason I wanted us to, to, to look at, the, at, the, um, at this verse. It, it, it reinforces the point that we're wanting to make from uh, 1, uh, 3, and 4, that is the exaltation, the exaltation at the time, the time in which Christ is made better than the angels, that is, after he had been, uh, in the language of 2.9, using Psalm 8, made lower than the angels or subordinate to the angels for a little while. Um, so there's a contrast between humiliation and exaltation in 2.9. Now, these considerations point up a factor which is quite prominent in New Testament teaching, teaching about Christ, and um, I'm assuming that um, most of you are familiar with some of that, say, from work that you've done in the theology of Paul uh, or elsewhere. But while it might be a prominent point in New Testament teaching, and, and I think we can say we're at a point where um, also it, 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 it is being more and more recovered by the church, still it's all too frequently overlooked in dogmatic discussions about the person and work of Christ, too frequently uh, not appreciated adequately in Christological discussions and presentation. And the point uh, particularly is this, if I could put it another way or more pointedly. 
What these verses point us to, you see, is what the work of Christ involved for Christ himself. What the work of Christ meant for Christ himself in terms of new attainment and even transformation. You see, our tendency in doctrinal teaching and in preaching, our tendency is to consider Christ in terms of what he has done for others. The benefits of what Christ does for ourselves. And that, of course, is entirely proper. That's an important point. But there is a dimension, you see, um, that we must also uh, keep um, in view what is coming out here and is an important dimension just for understanding uh, the benefits that Christ secured for others. Uh, What Christ did for others has the character that it has because of what, if you will, he did for himself. He attained for himself. And you see, that is expressed here, that attainment, that attainment is expressed here as the inheritance of a more excellent name. And that, you see, we, we, uh, it, it's, it's certainly important, uh, it, it's certainly obvious Uh, if that's not putting it uh, unfairly or too strongly, uh, that we're not simply talking about some some bare vocable, um, some uh, name in some purely nominalist sense, but you see that inheritance of the more excellent name points to and is expressive of a new status, a better and new attainment, that begins at the ascension. Something happened for Christ. Something happened to Christ, the writer wants us to understand, that, is, that dates from the ascension. Now, perhaps it will be helpful to us here if, if we see that essentially the same pattern... Um, of thought that we find expressed here in in, in 3 and 4 in a more condensed form, that same pattern of thought is found um, elsewhere throughout the New Testament. And one passage where we can um, see that um, uh, elaborated somewhat further is in Paul. Anybody have any idea what passage I'm thinking about here? Philippians 2 is what I wanted to draw attention to. Anyone else have other suggestions? Uh, uh, there will be a, a couple of others. We'll get at them. But Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Um, just look there very quickly um, without getting at all into the details of the passage. There can be um, some debate about the, um, the literary structure here in 6 through 11, but it it seems to me that in the end of the day, uh, whatever you want to decide about a pre-Pauline base that's been modified here, uh, what you have is is essentially uh, two strophes, uh, segments, 6 through 8 and 9 through 11. And you see, uh, 6 through 8 then answer to Hebrews 1, 3, The um, being in the form of God, being the exact representation, the effulgence of the divine glory, um, then the whole notion of, of, of humiliation is elaborated here. Uh, but you notice how the segment then ends with his being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and that answers particularly to the idea of having made cleansing for sin. But then what is uh, interesting, um, and that we're going to need to think about a little bit more, is that you see verse, um, verses 9 through 11 answer to verse 4 in Hebrews 1. As, the, the Paul, as Paul puts it uh, at, Hebrews, uh, at um, Philippians 2, 9, Wherefore... 
God has highly exalted him and given, given him the name which is above every name. So there you see you have uh, the same essential thought of the exaltation involving uh, the imparting of a name. Um, the, um, the, the, the exaltation, if you will, as a name event. Now there's a difference, and you can perhaps already see it, in Philippians 2, the name is that of Kurios. It is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 11 is the culminating uh, confession. However, uh, in our context in Hebrews uh, 1, what we want to see is that the name inherited by Christ in the ex exaltation is Huios, is Son. Christ inherits the name, the better name, uh, that is uh, the, the more excellent name that has been inherited in the exaltation is that of Son. And that is something we have to, uh, uh, to reflect on uh, further now. Uh, because that could raise um, some questions. How can it be that Christ becomes the Son or receives the name of Son in the exaltation? Uh, uh, first uh, off here, I think what we need to appreciate is that this is in fact, however else we need to, we're going to account for this, this is in fact what the writer is saying. We can see that from verse 5, where the writer reports, uh, supports what he has just said. Um, by um, making use of these two Old Testament citations. Um, and actually what verse 5 does is, is to take up and to, be, and to begin uh, to develop a contrast, you see, that becomes very explicit in verse 4. What verse 4 does is contrast the Son and the angels. And that structures the discussion on through the rest of chapter 1 into verse, uh, in, into chapter 2. That is the contrast with the angels as a teaching device. So in other words, uh, even though it's true uh, that you do have a, a unit that stands by itself in verses 1 through 4, you don't want to... Uh, you don't want to emphasize too much the break between verse 4 and 5. The gar, you see, connects uh, with what has uh, preceded. Now, these citations, more particularly, uh, they serve to support and to amplify the assertion of verse 4, along with verse 3. See, the writer has just said that the betterness that comes about by the exaltation, that betterness consists in uh, inheriting a more excellent name. And clearly then, the material of verse 5 is appealed to the Old Testament to support that declaration. Now, as you look at the two, uh, there are two passages quoted here. As you look at them, uh, you can see that in both, the point is the same. In both passages, uh, the point is the identity of the one addressed as son. Or to put it uh, somewhat more broadly, the point in both these statements is the father-son relationship that is brought into view the father-son relationship brought into view. Now, second, uh, just to delve into um, um, these Old Testament materials just a bit, uh, commenting, first of all, on the, on the second one, which is 2 Samuel 7.14. Um, I will be his father, he will be my son. 
the Hebrew or the Greek um, translation reflecting the, uh, the Semitism of the Hebrew construction. Uh, now that reference, that's clear prophecy, and, and there is clearly a messianic reference that is, is plain here. Messianic sonship is introduced. And that is now being applied to what has taken place in the exaltation. Uh, what is cited first, though, is Psalm 2.7. Uh, Psalm 2.7, as it consists of two clauses, paratactic uh, in parallel to each other. Uh, you are my son. I have begotten you. I have begotten you today. Now, the question that can be raised here, and it's not the question that... Uh, that I'm raising for the first time by any means. It, it's, it's been uh, debated over a long, uh, uh, down through um, uh, several centuries at least. Uh, the question uh, that, and, and I think this helps focus our thinking here, so I've, I've chosen to bring it into our, our, our own comments here. Uh, the issue here can be put these, this way. Are these two clauses that we have here, are they both messianically, uh, are they both to be taken messianically, or is only the second messianic in character? Uh, or uh, to put the, um, the issue another way, when the writer says, you are my son, excuse me, uh, and of course it's, it's, it's the Lord speaking, when the first uh, clause says, you are my son, does that have reference to the identity in which the one addressed is begotten? Or is this his identity as a result of the activity of being begotten? In other words, uh, to put it yet another way, is this first clause to be taken ontologically as an assertion of, a, of eternal sonship or is it like the second clause to be taken messianically in an economic to use uh, that older technical theological sense or, or, uh, or functional sense So is uh, surely this surely this second clause we're saying, like Second Samuel seven fourteen, is to be taken messianically. Now the issue is then whether the first clause here is to be taken messianically or ontologically. And um, just to address that uh, question then uh, a, a little bit. Um, I think that it is almost certainly the case that the first clause, you are my son, has an ontological reference. Uh, particularly from the way in which uh, the writer is making use of it here in, um, in, in, in Hebrews. For one thing, the reference to huios in verse 2, as it triggers the relative clauses that follow. The reference to son there involves a divine intertrinitarian as well as a messianic reference. Particularly the first of the relative clauses, who being the effulgence of the glory and the exact representation of his God's person. And, and further, as you work through chapter 1, I won't take the time to do that here, we find uh, several references, the accent as sun is contrasted with angels, uh, what comes through is the deity of the sun. We see that uh, in verses 8 and 9, 
and in verses 10 through 12 in chapter 1. Uh, the pattern that we have in Psalm 2-7, and as we have it um, uh, made use of here then in Hebrews uh, 1, the pattern is, I think, to be seen as exactly that, or, or uh, essentially that, that we find in Psalm 89, 27, and 28. Psalm 89, 27, and 28. In the Septuagint, 88, 26, and 27. Actually, this is the Masoretic text in the English. It's uh, 89, 26, and 27. Now, just, uh, just, just, just very quickly, uh, without um, getting our discussion overly complicated here, just to make a um, draw attention to the basic pattern there. Um, the, the Psalm 89 is um, Davidic Psalm and looking particularly to, um, to the future of the Lord's anointed. And the Lord there, as in Psalm 2, is speaking and says, verse 27, He shall call to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And then, verse, the next verse that follows, I will make him, or as we could translate, I will, imp I will appoint him firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. So that the pattern in, 89 and, in, in Psalm 89 is between the identity, uh, first of all, the pattern is first of all the identity of uh, the one speaking, and then the exaltation that is experienced in that identity. And so, similarly, a Psalm two ought to be uh, seems to be read that way. In this identity as son, and this does now begin. Uh, this is a rather unique way of uh, expression, if we're if are correct in our analysis. It's in it's it's the subjects in his identity as son. Just in that identity as being already being son, he is said to be begotten. The son is begotten. Uh, we're saying that the point here is the exaltation, and, and we'll argue that a little bit further. I, I, I would say in the, in the Hebrews passage, it's clearly um, the exaltation. Um, by the way, uh, one other, um, uh, just this pattern of identity um, and then action terminating on that identity, you can think of uh, the statement of, of the Father, the heavenly voice, looking at it in Matthew in 3.17. You are my son, or this is my son, this is my beloved son. There is the identity, and then follows, predicated or affirmed of the beloved son, in whom I have taken pleasure, which is almost certainly there to be understood as messianic good pleasure. It's not a timeless kind of aorist, but the, the aorist has a timed force. So it's the pleasure uh, manifested in messianic appointment. And it's in his identity as the beloved son uh, that he is appointed messianically. And as I said, uh, surely then the, um, the, um, the second clause uh, here is to be taken um, as, me as, as messianic, whatever, whatever we would decide about the first. Now, we need to think about that a little bit further. It gets on the point that just came up about the time of this beginning. You see, what this clause does is supply the verbal idea. The verbal idea or activity which bears directly on the thought of verse 4. See, the writer said in verse 4 that being made better than the angels uh, is, is also uh, 
involves inheriting a better name. And now all that is further defined, uh, being made better, uh, inheriting uh, a more excellent name. That is now defined or, or nuanced, qualified as a begetting. A begetting which the son experiences from the context in his exaltation. Now that the exaltation, um, there, there would not, there would uh, particularly. By the way, let me just back up a second. You see, then uh, that this ought not this uh, clause from Psalm two seven. Uh, is talking about an activity that takes place in history that ought not to be used as a proof text for the so-called eternal generation of the Son. We can, we can leave that question to the side, whether that can be established on other grounds. Um, but um, this, this ought not to be uh, facilely cited uh, as establishing such eternal generation uh, certainly as the writer of Hebrews sees it, uh, it describes the activity, it's, it's, it's a way of describing the activity that takes place in the exaltation, which he's already said uh, is uh, being made better than the angels, inheriting a better name. Yes. Okay, hang on to that question, and, and, and I, I, um, I appreciate you're putting the question that way because it's just that, uh, I want you to feel the burden of that, if you will. Um, now, just to, uh, I think, as I said, I think it's clear enough that the exaltation, if we give this a timed reference, not some eternal begetting, but something that takes place in time, and you see this is an activity, uh, we've said from the immediate context that time, uh, there, there's nothing else that suggests itself other than the exaltation. Uh, and what confirms that is if you look over in chapter 5 of Hebrews, Hebrews 5. Notice what happens in Hebrews 5. We have the other instance in the document where the writer uses Psalm 2.7. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but he was glorified, in effect, by the one who said to him, You are my son, I have begotten you today. And notice then how that's further, the close connection that's drawn to Psalm 110 and verse 6, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, bringing into view the exaltation uh, as the time in which Psalm 2.7 and um, Psalm 110.4 are fulfilled. And um, not only is there that connection but there's the connect uh, with with Psalm 110. But just as you look at the wider context, we analyzed that uh, last time as as one of the passages where the writer uh, seems to be teaching that Christ doesn't become high priest until the exaltation. As you analyze through verse 10, I won't repeat everything that I said then. Uh, just outside of the of the document for a second, look at Acts 13:33. Uh, which is the only other, we go there because it's the only other place in the New Testament um, where Psalm 2 um, is, um, Psalm 2-7 is, is cited. We have three places, the two Hebrews occurrences and now Acts 13.33. It's, the context is Paul's uh, sermon at um, uh, City in Antioch uh, and coming to, uh, toward the close um, he mentions in verse 32, uh, we have proclaimed the gospel to you, proclaimed to you as gospel, uh, the promise which came to your fathers. And that promise is that God, that it's the promise that God uh, has fulfilled because 
um, God fulfilled this promise to us, his children, raising up Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Now, take in verse here, without getting too many irons in the fire here, there's some debate here whether what is the reference of that raising up Jesus. For one thing, you surely see that you're in the, uh, the arena of history here. Uh, fulfillment of the promise. And then, but the question is, is this raising up Jesus, is that thinking of his, the point of his incarnation being brought into the world, or is it to be taken more literally as a reference to the resurrection? Well, what has always weighed with me uh, is what the writer goes on to say in verse 34. But because he has raised him from the dead, no longer to be subject to corruption. So that, um, uh, you know, maybe you can have the, the best of both worlds here, uh, sort of the, the, the incarnation and, the, uh, and, the, and the, uh, the exaltation here pointed more on the resurrection than on the, um, uh, the, exal- than, than the ascension. You don't want to drive a wedge between those two. Uh, but you see, the accent is surely on what takes place in exaltation, in the resurrection. So, uh, the conclusion that we're coming to here is that the exaltation of the Son, the writer is teaching, as that would involve resurrection, ascension, and heavenly session, the exaltation of the Son involves the beginning of a new and final phase of sonship. And we should be clear, of messianic sonship. What the writer is wanting to teach us, uh, accent at the outset of the document here, is that the exaltation, heavenly session, means the entrance of Jesus into a filial relationship that is so unprecedented, so exalted, so climactic, that it can be described as nothing less, the inher- nothing less than the inheritance of the name of Son. That it can be described as nothing less than being begotten. So to address the question that, 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 that was raised, uh, I think we're, uh, we're being pressed here to, uh, to a certain flexibility in our thinking. It's not as if uh, Jesus, the subject of the exaltation, was not the Son before, but particularly, uh, uh, and this is why I wanted to go a, a, a bit into the, uh, the, the force of Psalm 2, uh, the one who is the eternal Son and becomes incarnate as the Son is nevertheless, because of, of the significance, the climactic significance of the exaltation, uh, uh, introduced into, um, that by way of comparison, that new status is, is so exalted, it's as if in that event he becomes son, is uh, introduced into a, a new and final phase of sonship. Well, uh, let's take our break and we can uh, pick up on questions and I want to spend a little time looking at a couple of other statements in the New Testament that, that I think help us to, to understand what the writer is getting at here.